0: You know, a, a slip of the tongue could be on the front page the next day, or something c- communicated using the, the wrong words uh, could, could land you in, in some hot water.
1: Welcome to the Inspire podcast, where we examine what it takes to intentionally inspire. I'm your host, Bart Egnal, President and CEO of The Humphrey Group. And if you've ever asked yourself, how can you develop an authentic leadership presence, Or how can you tell stories that have people hanging off every word? Well, then this podcast is for you. And it's not just for executives. This is a podcast for anyone who wants to influence and inspire others in their work, but also in their life. Welcome back to the Inspire Podcast. If there's one thing that's become the norm in this new normal of COVID, it's hearing from politicians a lot. Here in Canada, as well as around the world, it seems like every day politicians are stepping up to the microphone to provide leadership, guidance and direction. And listening to them, I'm always filled with empathy and compassion for the challenge that they face of having to appeal to such a broad constituency and provide leadership when uh, there is so much that's unknown. Uh, Really the skills that we teach, even though we don't really work with politicians in the Humphrey group. The ability to inspire, to have a vision, to provide a clear message are fundamental to their success. But, you know, what's it like to actually be a politician? What rules do they follow to develop their messaging? What does success look like? How do they deal with the often harsh comments they get? Well, these were questions I wanted to tackle. And so my guest, who is a politician, but he's a unique politician that he's an alumni of the Humphrey Group. Uh, Dimitri Nicolaitis. He's a uh, politician in Alberta and a member of the Albertan government um, cabinet and he joined me on the podcast to talk about his experiences of running for office and then uh, taking on uh, more leadership than he'd anticipated and starting to get in the habit of speaking uh, as a political leader. So even if you're not in politics, I know you'll find value in my conversation with Dimitri. So enjoy. Dimitri, welcome to the Inspire Podcast.
0: Bart, thank you very much for having me. It's uh, it's a real pleasure to be on the show with you.
1: You, uh, you were elected as an MLA for Calgary Bow, and then you were appointed to uh, the Premier's cabinet as the Minister of Advanced Education. And how long have you been in office?
0: So we were about uh, nine to 10 months um, into it, still a few months to go until that first anniversary, but uh, sure seems like uh, it's been a lot longer than that.
1: You know, th- this podcast, as you know from working and leading our team in uh, Alberta, has delved into what it means to inspire. And I've traditionally had people on from the business world, from the world of of the bureaucracy of government, but I've never had anyone on from the political realm. And I thought, uh, as you and I discussed, it's really an environment where everything that we talk about, everything that we're passionate about around having a message around, you know, commitment to your convictions and the need to be ready all come to play in your success day after day after day. So I want to have you on to talk about that and talk about your journey So winning a campaign and the lessons you drew from it to your reflections from a year in office. And then your recommendations or guidance, uh, having now sat on the chair as an instructor, but also sat in the chair as an, an elected official for anyone who's hoping to strengthen their ability to inspire. So perhaps we could begin with the campaign. Talk to me a bit about looking back. What you learned around communicating in those early days in a political environment that differed from your experiences in life and in the business world prior to that.
0: The thing that really stood out in my mind was how precise and, and crisp you needed to be in such a short amount of time to be able to uh, I- inspire others and motivate them to your your thinking or or the vision of the party that you're representing or or the leader. And I think that's where a lot of um, learnings and experiences from the Humphrey group set me up for success (laughs) in doing that.
1: And do you remember, if you think back to those heavy early days, were there any situations where you met with potential voters and you you bombed or you failed to do that? that, that come to mind?
0: Well, I think that uh, there was, there was um, one situation that, that I remember co- that I remember quite clearly. Um, it had been after a long day of about knocking on doors, and uh, you're you're starting to get a little bit tired, of course, and um, the the whole experience starting to, to weigh you down. And uh, an individual answers the door, and after some initial uh, probing questions, you you, I, at least I got the sense that the individual had was generally undecided. And uh, was someone that, that could be swayed, and they asked me a couple of questions related to specific policy issues, whether you know it's healthcare or education, and I just I didn't have the information readily available at my fingertips. It was such a long day, and wasn't able to clearly articulate in a, again that very quick short amount of time what the vision and thought was for those particular policy areas that were important to this one individual, and it, it left them feeling uncertain. And they, they had more questions after the exchange, uh, which, of course, then warranted for me to follow up with them via email or give them a call and talk with them in further detail afterwards. And so uh, not, not having that information or, or that, that ability to really, really be crisp and concise in my messaging caused me to have to do a little bit more digging with that one individual.
1: But then you went into office and you were named um, to cabinet. Now, let's talk a bit about that because you're a first-time MLA. And you were chosen for the cabinet. Had you built a relationship with Premier Kenny, or what led him to be inspired to choose you for that role?
0: Yeah, so I've, uh, of course, had the opportunity to build a relationship with him over the last uh, few years. And, um, and I think coming back to it, you know, in, in terms of uh, me being appointed as, as Minister of Advanced Education, I think a, a big component of it had to do with, um, of course, a uh, component of my academic background, uh, having spent uh, some time in academia, having finished my PhD and uh, some, some time as a lecturer, I believe uh, positioned me well to, to be able to lead our post-secondary system here in Alberta. But, but, but furthermore, I think one of the other important elements there is which, which link back to one of the things that, that um, I remember so vividly from my days at the Humphrey Group, the importance of starting right from the very beginning of the necessity to have clear vision. And I had some clear ideas with respect to how our post-secondary system needed to change uh, elements of a vision as to where we needed to go and how we would get there. And, uh, and I believe it was that, that clarity of mindset that uh, help position me um, uh, for success because of course, as you know, in, in any kind of leadership capacity, whether it's in the private sector or politics, you need to have that absolute clarity as to your future direction and the vision in which you wish to take uh, an organization, a department, a team or um, or in my case, a post-secondary system. So uh, prior to being appointed, there would be, of course numerous conversations you know with, with Premier Kenny and Winch I would talk about how I would see the the post-secondary system evolving and developing and where some of the shortfalls may be, and of course, areas in which the system can be strengthened. And And I believe that um, uh, clarity over the vision and future direction was an important element of that.
1: And did you start putting that vision forward to him before you knew that you were being considered for the role? I mean, was that what led to his consideration? How did that all come to pass?
0: Yeah, th- that may very well be. Uh, and, you know, I certainly did. It's an area where, where I have a lot of passion, um, again, given the fact that I spent many years completing my PhD and, and, um, uh, and um, a- as a sessional instructor for a short period of time. And even prior to that, uh, going back to my undergraduate days at the University of Calgary, I spent some time as a student leader uh, and so ha- have worn so many different hats as an academic, a researcher, a student leader and it was it was something that i was always quite passionate about and, and always interested in in looking at uh, developing a stronger post secondary system so i know that in so many of my conversations not just with premier kenny but with so many of uh, other individuals that eventually be, were elected themselves and became my colleagues one of the topics that was always on the tip of, tip of my tongue was post secondary education and and so i believe that that um, was an important uh, important element
1: and you can tell me if i'm right or wrong on this but i almost feel like in politics where the bureaucracy remains and the politicians change that this vision that you're describing that ability to rally constituents is even more critical because you you don't in some ways command the you know, the bureaucracy they know that they can outlast you and the voters can vote you out or or just wait so Vision's almost all you have, right, to bring people forward.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, what you described as well in terms of the bureaucracy reminds me of some of my first conversations um, <laughs> with, with my deputy minister and other senior members of, of the bureaucracy right. <laughs> within within my portfolio. And, uh, you know, going in, of course, you understand and know that it's incredibly important in some of those first interactions to be able to articulate uh, to some of those uh, senior bureaucrats, what the direction is, where we're going to go, by what time frame, how we how we in, uh, see achieving some of those key milestones, uh, because of course, then that individual. Um, so so in my case, for example, my deputy minister uh, fundamentally leads a ministry which is uh, which has about five hundred employees. So then that individual, through through their deputy ministers and through the layers of bureaucracy, needs to be able to transmit. That vision and message to all layers of, of the ministry uh, so that everybody's working on the same page. So, if you don't have that clarity, of course, yourself, there's, there's going to be some significant challenges in front of you, no question about it.
1: You're starting as a politician, you've, you've gotten better at you know, being on message, shortening the conversations, conveying a vision, then you actually start the work of politics. What shocked you in these early days? From a leadership and communication standpoint, even with the growing you'd already done to get to that point,
0: I think one of the things that that shocked me, which was, I I, I have to say, something that that I anticipated uh, and and was preparing for was uh, the degree to which you always needed to be on uh, for for lack of a better term, you know a. A slip of the tongue could be on the front page the next day or something communicated using the the wrong words uh, could could land you in in some hot water. So having to be very focused and regimented in in terms of what you're saying and how you're saying it and being very mindful as well of your audience, uh, those were the elements that that. Took me back a bit, and and took me a, l- a
1: little bit more time uh, to get to get used to. Did you have any slip ups in those early days before that was internalized?
0: I no, I, I don't believe there was any any front page uh, story regarding a um, you know you a got phrase lucky. or a word. Or, <laughs> uh, so, That's great. So I, well, I I don't know if I would say lucky. I would say um, you know. G- good practice and and being diligent about communication mm-hmm. and and to be frank, leaning back on a lot of my experiences and my time with the Humphrey Group, mm-hmm. uh, we, we you know we talk about vision, which we spent mm-hmm. some time discussing. We talk about, of course, the the uh, this, the script and uh, applying a very structured approach to your communication. And uh, there's apart from presence as well. There's so much time and emphasis, as you know, of course, as, uh, on on language yes. and being very cognizant of the words that we use. And mm. um, there's, there's so, so many examples and instances of individuals uh, misspeaking or using a poor choice of words to describe a situation and then landing themselves in hot water. So that part for me, I would say that aspect of language mm-hmm. has, uh, has been put in, into more focus and has been something that I've been um, focusing on a lot more since, since coming into mm. office as well. Is
1: there a certain kind of language? I mean, I couldn't agree more, by the way. Obviously, I wrote a book on language, but is there, is there a certain kind of language now that you're in office that you that you try and use? Uh,
0: yes, I would say there's there's probably two types of language which you, you try to use much more. Um, uh, of course, you, you want to ensure that you're consistently con- conveying and using confident language uh, as much as possible, even in situations where there's, there's uncertainty. There are storm clouds ahead. Uh, uh, members of you know the uh, your constituents or, or or people in the province that are listening or reading the things that you might say. look look to our political leaders, uh, look to us for uh, guidance. and i and I believe having being able to communicate with a confident language and with confidence is is important uh, and uh, providing reassurance where where possible.
1: Another thing you mentioned. Um when we talk about the skills and the work that we do at the Humphrey Group that I'm guessing has become important is to always be ready. And I know as a politician, you're probably, uh, you know, uh, be, you're at an event, someone asks you to speak, uh, you know, you're in question period and you get, and you get, a, you get something you weren't expecting. It, how much of your speaking is just being ready to be on when you weren't ready to speak? So,
0: uh, an incredible amount of it is uh, is is that element of always being on and being prepared to speak. Um, it's and it, it's been so frequent. It's of course almost becoming second nature. Mm-hmm. Um, e- even just nine ten months in, uh, but when you're moving from meeting to meeting, you know, you could be in a room with with a hundred people uh, giving remarks at a lunch to then a private meeting with, with a stakeholder group, uh, with a president of a university, to then in-question period, to then walking out of-question period and walking through reporters. Uh, there's, there's, there's very limited time for you not to be thinking about your key messages on particular issues, mm-hmm. um, how you are going to articulate your thoughts on a, on a, on a file or on, or on a topic, and so you, indeed, must constantly be on and must always be uh, prepared to provide clarity and uh, to reaffirm the government's message and your message um, in an instant.
1: Hmm. And I want to dig into what you just said there, reaffirm your message and the government's message in an instant. Obviously, you, you're you representing a party that whose platform you believe in. But as a human, there are inevitably going to be times where there's some daylight between the government's position and the position that you might have. How do you reconcile that in your communication?
0: Yeah, I think an an important part of it is something that I learned quite a bit during my time at the Humphrey Group, uh, which is reflecting on your own personal beliefs and convictions and uh, and trying to ensure that those are being uh, articulated as well. Uh, and, you know, oftentimes in a lot of government communication, it, it tends to be, uh, from my experience, depersonalized in the sense of, you know, the government has announced this or the ministry has done this. And, and even in, oftentimes in statements that, uh, that I write or, or that, that are put forward for, for media releases from my end, I, found, I find uh, and found in a lot of reflection that the word I was missing oftentimes in that communication. And, and I've been very actively trying to ensure that, that those I statements are coming back in to so that an individual reading a statement or hearing me speak is quite clear when I'm saying that I believe this is a direction that we need to take or a change that needs to happen or it's my belief that we can do better or we can, we can strengthen uh, uh, pathways and transferabilities to students, uh, recognizing so that so that an individual listening can recognize that it's a very clear uh, conviction of mine, and and I believe that is so fundamental to uh, helping individuals connect with the government's message, uh, and with uh, and with the priorities of the day.
1: And I like that it's uh, politics can still be humanized. You know that it is still you. You know and that's something I always admired about you while you were working with the Humphrey Group is your deep commitment to the province and to what your vision for it was. So. It's nice to hear that you know when you're subsumed into a political machine that there's still place for that, and not only place but actually a real need for it.
0: And and I have to admit it. I think it's 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 difficult to take some some very proactive thinking and working to ensure that that personal voice is is coming out as much as possible mm-hmm. and being reflected um, uh, rather than than the. the uh, rather than the communication being mm-hmm. depersonalized from from the sense of simply a government department or uh, a ministry,
1: we know the era that we're in today, even here in Canada, that politics is you know, increasingly referred to as a blood sport. You know the Twitterization, the uh, you know the backlash. No matter what decision you make, seems inevitable. How have you dealt with that and? Do you think, and what do you think should be done about that, if anything?
0: Yeah, that that's a very very good point, and I think just reflecting back on one of your earlier questions, that's one of the other things that perhaps has taken me back a a little bit. Is is the extent of that? I don't know if, if divisiveness or polarization is the right word, but uh, there's there there's there's a there's a quick to judgment and there's a mm-hmm. quick to ridicule and criticize um, and, and and disparage, you know everything that that is done. Um, and, you know, and, and both sides, of course, do this. Right. And, and so it's, it's not just indicative of one side or the other. But but it's certainly a reflection, as you said, I think, in, in, in political communication around the world. And, and I'm not sure precisely what's driving it. It's quite, quite interesting. Actually, I was just on this topic. It was something I was thinking about the other day. We're, we're out of session at the moment. We're, we'll okay. be beginning session um, in a few more weeks. And the Speaker of the House uh, decided to implement a new initiative uh, because we're not in session. He says uh, people aren't able to tune in to question period on a daily basis, which usually happens at, at 1.30 p.m. in Alberta uh, Standard Mountain Time. And so we're, we're not in session. So people aren't able to do that. And he says, well, uh, I, I know that there is uh, a huge audience of people who are fixated on their computers, watching Question Period every single day. Hmm. So so to fill that void, he, he began an initiative, what, what he's called now, uh, Retro Question Period. <laughs> so he's airing clips from Question Period back in the 80s and the 90s. Okay. And, and I'm, I'm not even sure from what time frame. And I caught one of them the other day, and I was really taken aback and surprised at how cordial, respectful... Right. <laughs> The, the dialogue and debate was they were legitimately asking questions of one another because they wanted answers, uh, not, not to just score political points. The answers were given in a way to provide clarity, not to score right. political points. Uh, it was really remarkable, and, and, I, and I thought to myself, how did we go from that to where we are today? So I'm not quite sure. I don't really have the answer, but it, it certainly, uh, it's it certainly amplified. Uh, whether you're looking at the federal parliament mm-hmm. in in Ottawa or the United Kingdom or, or so many other jurisdictions on the world, it certainly is amplified, and uh, it, it, I'm not entirely sure what what's driving that, but it's it, it's certainly a change, and I think in that climate, I think one of the things that we can do as communicators, and especially in the in the political environment is precisely what we touched on a moment ago is bringing back as much as we can an element of humanization um, bringing some of those I statements mm-hmm. back into the, the communication as much as possible, letting people know um, where where I as an individual or, or we as government individuals uh, fall and believe on a, on a particular what our views are on a particular topic and and where we stand and what we would like to see um, as individuals, I think that, that that, would be, um, a helpful, a step in, in the right direction.
1: And that you're, that you're a human who's, who's doing your best for a province, whether people agree with you or not. And, you know, it is the individual there and you, I mean, I, I know the time and effort you put in. So have, have you personally experienced, you know, attacks and things that have made you uncomfortable?
0: Oh, absolutely. There's there's no shortage of it, um, and you know a lot of the the attacks on policy and on decisions, I think, is completely fair game. I have mm-hmm. no problem with that, uh, and that's to be expected. Of course, the challenge is when some of those attacks become personal, right? And uh, and, and maybe invoke members of your family as well, where where it right. can become problematic, mm-hmm. and I, I I think crosses the line. Um, I I try to um, avoid uh, as much as uh, of that as possible, and you know I have had to do a little bit of work with with the family as well, and um, uh, telling them to you know work on developing a thicker skin and just to be mindful of. What they're reading and where they're reading and why they're reading it. I mean, you know, for you know, logging onto Twitter every day to see what the latest comment is about me, probably right. isn't the best thing to right. be doing. Uh, and, and not and not it's, the it's, recipe it's for emotional gonna, happiness. <laughs> uh, uh, absolutely. So uh, there's there's been a learning curve in that respect from from both, of course, mm-hmm. me and my family as well. But like I said, I'm I'm all I'm all in for robust debates mm-hmm. and discussions on on policy and decisions and how we move forward. And I. Th- think that that kind of debate and discussion leads us to building a stronger society.
1: Well, and and, you know, the fact that you're so committed to the work you're doing that you're willing to step into that arena, I give you a lot of credit. You know, as someone who owns and runs a privately held company, I am, you know, mercifully uh, not in the public arena, (laughs) aside from this podcast, I guess. Uh, But it's much more benign than changing policies around how universities are funded among other things so I give you a lot of credit for uh, for stepping into it
0: you know it, it, it can be it can be challenging uh, of course it can be um, difficult uh, but uh, what what you have to remember at the end of the day are your your personal those those inner core convictions those personal beliefs that that drive your behavior uh, that, that drive your decision making and uh, and I have to say, there, there's many times where you you have to take a moment, reflect back on those, think again, um, why you decided to put your name forward, why you believe that you could help uh, contribute to creating a better mm-hmm. society, uh, find some strength in those inner convictions and continue moving forward.
1: So let me close by asking you, you've gone through, you've gone from the ivory tower to the corporate world, and now into politics. And... You've obviously learned and grown as a communicator and a leader throughout. What would be the number one lesson you would share with people listening, even if they're never aspiring to be in politics, but if they're aspiring to enter an arena where they want to bring about change and maybe have to deal with some difficult conversations in uh, the way you have, what lesson would you leave them with?
0: Well, I think the lesson I would leave them with is the one that we just touched on uh, just a moment ago which is to find strength and courage in your own convictions there as i've found in the past few months during my time in government there's all there're always going to be people who who disagree with you and i think that that's also the case in in, in the private sector and, and even in my time in academia in fact as i'm remembering there're always going to be individuals who disagree with you and who won't be happy about the direction you want to you want to take your, your company, your department, or your society, community, or province. But by resting on your strong-held uh, beliefs and convictions, that can lead you through some challenging times, some difficult conversations. And if and I, I kind of view them as the light in the darkness when, when you have to make a difficult decision and, and it seems like there, there are dark clouds around you. That, your personal health convictions and beliefs are, in my view, what give you light to continue moving forward through through some of the darkness. And we all we all face it. We all face it in, in our private lives, in, in in our careers, in our professions. We have to continue to think about what we truly believe, how we can make a make an impact, create something uh, different, uh, improve something and, move forward from that place of security.
1: Well said. And, uh, you know, it's certainly wonderful to listen to you, the, to feel that Canadian politics and politicians are doing things for the right reasons, if, they're, if you're any guide <laughs> to it. Uh, and so I appreciate it. I appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing your thinking with us, but also what you're striving to do for our country. So thank you.
0: You're, you're very welcome. It's been a True pleasure. Thank you for having me on. And uh, thank you to all the uh, listeners as well. And I'm um, uh, looking forward to catching up with you at the next available opportunity.
1: And Dimitri, if you're, I'll be out in uh, in Alberta in December. So if you can fit me into your your busy schedule, we can grab a drink or we can go to the best Greek restaurant in town. We should we should plug your uh, your dad's restaurant. So for anyone coming to Alberta, go for it. This is a I'll give you a chance to give the ad.
0: Uh, Oh, sure. Absolutely. Well, well, as said by you, that it's the best Greek restaurant uh, in town. Um, And of course, I think I'm a little bit biased in that regard. My parents (laughs) are the owners and uh, operators of Santorini Greek Taverna. um, And they have uh, been the uh, owners there for, I believe, coming on 34 years now. And so naturally, I'm, I'm a little bit biased and think that uh, it's it's quite a place.
1: And despite our attempts to orchestrate your dad's gentle retirement over many of our meals, he's still going strong and uh, so is the restaurant. So we'll have to uh, check it out when I'm out there. <laughs>
0: Absolutely. Look forward to having Well,
1: thanks so much, Dimitri.
0: Of course. Anytime. Thanks again.
1: Hey, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dimitri Nicolaitis, a politician out in Alberta working hard uh, on behalf of Canadians in a province that's been hugely impacted by not only the pandemic, but also the downturn in oil prices. I'm always inspired. You know, when I talk to people in office, uh, their commitment to service and to helping others, uh, it just comes through loud and clear so next time on the inspire podcast uh my guest is tim tamashiro and he joins me to talk about the art of finding what you're meant to be doing and i think at this time of covid when we're all reflecting on our lives and what's uh, giving us joy it's uh it's a very relevant conversation so tune in next time for a really neat discussion until then stay safe and may all your words be inspiring